You are listening to a Pleasure Podcast. For more from our sex podcast collective, visit pleasurepodcasts.com. Thanks for tuning in. Sluts and Scholars is a sex-positive, shame-free educational podcast where we try to help you talk smart and fuck smarter. While we love to give advice and resources, please note that this podcast or any emails from us are not intended to be therapy or a replacement for therapy. This episode is sponsored in part by Hashtag Lube Life. Hashtag Lube Life products are made in California from the highest quality ingredients in their USDA-certified organic facility and are available in water-based, silicone, flavored, and more. To buy through Amazon, go to lubelife.com. They're already super affordable, but now you can get 20% off by using our Sluts and Scholars promo code 20SCHOLARS, 20SCHOLARS. If you lube it, they will come. Welcome back to another week of Sluts and Scholars, where we talk smart and fuck smarter. I'm Nicoletta, and I'm a marriage and family therapist and sexologist. And I'm Simone, and I'm a law student who likes to talk about boning. This week, we are joined by Dr. Justin J. Laymiller. He received his PhD in social psychology from Purdue. He's currently a research fellow at the, you probably have heard of it, Kinsey Institute, and has written a bunch, including his new hit book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. Dr. Laymiller is an award-winning educator, having been honored three times with the Certificate of Teaching Excellence from Harvard, where he taught for several years. He's a big fucking deal. He's also a prolific researcher and scholar who's published more than 40 academic works to date. Um, he also runs the popular, uh, he's run the popular blog Sex and Psychology since 2011, and there's so much posting all the time. It's fascinating. From the Wall Street Journal to NPR, he's been on He's been featured on countless news and media outlets as a sexually, sexuality expert. His textbook, The Psychology of Human Sexuality, is one of the textbooks Nicoletta used in her master's program. And now he's on Sluts and Scholars. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. I or already so. like fangirled to you before we started recording, but it was just so exciting to, to have you on the podcast and have this opportunity to talk to you because in like all of my classes in my uh, masters of Education and Human Sexuality at Widener, like all of our professors were always like, oh, have you checked out this by Justin LaMiller? Have you checked out this book? And like one of our core textbooks is your work. So it's an honor. Well, thank <laughs> you. That's so nice to hear. I appreciate it. Um, so your new book is all about fantasy. And I feel like we've, we talk a lot about fantasies that we have here on the podcast, but I feel like we've never really delved into the psychology of it. And Something that I encounter, at least with clients, is people wanting to know why they have a certain fantasy. Um, do you think it's important to know why we have fantasies? Or like, is it okay as long as you're cool with it? <laughs> I don't think you necessarily have to know why you have the fantasies that you do. I think what's more important is resolving the feelings that you have about your fantasies. I think the, the bigger problem mm -hmm. is that a lot of people have the shame and guilt and, and embarrassment and anxiety about their fantasies. And I think that's the, the bigger problem that needs to be addressed rather than figuring out exactly where they came from. And so why do you think people have this sense of shame and guilt about certain fantasies? Where does that come from? Is it just social conditioning or is there some underlying psychological element? 
I think a large part of it is just this longstanding cultural tradition we have where we tend to stigmatize any sexual behavior that sort of deviates from from what's considered normative. So uh, for a long time, penile vaginal intercourse within the context of a monogamous marriage was seen as the only legitimate form of sexual activity. And any deviation from that was was considered sinful or shameful, and in some cases was illegal. And so we have this mm-hmm. this longstanding history of of sex shame for anything that that sort of is outside of the the perceived norm. And although today, you know, sex is everywhere, we we hear more about diverse sexual practices and and sexual orientations, but that that anxiety and shame is definitely still palpable. Mm. It's so interesting, though, that people still feel shame about it when you can easily, I mean, one thing I love about, that I like about porn is that you can easily like go look online and see that somewhere out there, someone has probably created like what you've already been fantasizing about. And there's like means, a big community around it. <laughs> which means that like someone else has thought about it. Because I feel, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that a lot of the shame surrounding a fantasy is that you're like really scared. You're like the only one who has it. And so therefore you're like fucked up. Right. And and that's definitely something that I see in my data is I asked my participants how common they thought their sexual fantasy was. So how many, what percentage of the population do you think shares this fantasy? And what I found was that people consistently underestimated how common their fantasies were. And the rarer they thought their fantasy was, the more shame and guilt and embarrassment mm. they felt about it. Uh, so, so just because some porn exists that might depict your fantasy, that doesn't necessarily give people that, that comfort or sense that their fantasy is widely shared and, and the anxiety still persists. Yeah, yeah I really- mean, I think it's, I don't know, it's really tough because I I want people to obviously feel less sexual shame because it can lead to so many um, upsetting feelings and experiences. And it seems that having a little bit of shame or I guess more taboo can also be exciting or that's what like makes certain things sexually exciting. So I wonder like at what huh. level shame becomes detrimental that might be a, just a fantasy that you have, not alone, but like, I don't feel that. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, but not the, that the idea you're like alone taboo. in the world regarding that, obviously, but I'm not turned on by like the shame I feel about craving fucked up shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think there's a distinction between, you know, being turned on by something that is taboo and and feeling sexual shame. So you can engage in an activity that is is sexually taboo, but not feel bad about it at all. But the fact that it is taboo is something that heightens the arousal or pleasure that you get from it, just from knowing that you're doing something you're not supposed to be doing. And I find that taboo fantasies are one of the most popular fantasy themes that, that emerge. So people definitely are turned on by that. But I think um, th- there's a qualitative distinction between just being turned on by the taboo versus feeling the the shame and anxiety. What are some of the most like popular fantasies that you've seen in your research? So in the book, I talk about the results of a survey of more than 4,000 Americans where they were asked hundreds of questions about people, places, things they might have ever fantasized about. And I also asked them about their favorite fantasy of all time. And in analyzing the data, I came up with seven primary themes that seem to characterize our sexual fantasies. And 
some of the biggest ones were multi-partner sex, so having a threesome or some kind of group encounter, uh, engaging in BDSM activities ranging from mild to wild. Um, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of variation there, which is That's so subjective. The name of yeah. the episode. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, and what's what's wild for one person obviously can be can be very mild to someone else. But um, some of the other popular themes were the taboo fantasies, uh, the novelty fantasies, where you're just what's stepping taboo? out. Taboo would be just doing anything that is socially or culturally forbidden. Um, mm. I focus more on the fantasies that tend to be considered or have been labeled paraphilic by the psychological community. Um, you know, these are the fantasies that they have labeled as being unusual or uncommon. And, and most of them are considered to be social taboos like fetishes and um, exhibitionism and voyeurism and so forth. Got it. Sorry, back to the list. Novelty. <laughs> uh, so novelty is one of the other big fantasies where people are just doing something that's new and different for them. So that could be trying a new position, having sex in a new setting or location, uh, incorporating food with sex, you know, just, just sort of mixing it up in some way. Uh, and then some of the other fantasy themes were emotional fulfillment. So feeling um, connected to a partner intimately or feeling desired or wanted. Uh, there were also the, mm. the sort of gender bending and, and homoerotic fantasies where people are sort of experimenting with the boundaries of their gender role or sexual orientation. Uh, and then there's also the fantasies about being in a non-monogamous relationship where people are swinging or trying polyamory or, or some other type of open structure. So I would say those are really the most common themes that emerged. So I really feel like that list of themes is something that is typically available to act on. Mm -hmm. But how often do people act on these fantasies? Because a lot of these things seem feasible. <laughs> and, and most of them are. You know, the, certainly some of the taboo fantasies would be illegal. Some of them are non-consensual. Right. And, you know, that's a, that's a whole different conversation. But I asked people for their favorite fantasy of all time, do you want to act on this at some point? And what I found was that 80% of them said they did. So for the vast majority of people, their favorite fantasy is a sexual desire. It's something they want to do. Uh, however, only about 20%, about one in five people said that they had ever actually acted on that fantasy before. So there's a really big gap between fantasy and reality. Oh, that's kind of sad. It is sad, uh, especially from the standpoint that I find that the people who act on their fantasies report being the happiest in their relationships. They report the fewest sexual difficulties. Um, they're just doing the best on uh, all of these metrics that I was asking about. And, and most people said that sharing their fantasy with a partner, acting on it, by and large, was a positive experience. There were certainly some people who had negative experiences. Uh, and I think it's important to acknowledge there are risks when it comes to acting on a fantasy. And the risks are different right. for, for different types of fantasies. But most people are reporting good experiences with this and saying, not only did I enjoy it, but it strengthened my relationship. I, I do work with a lot of people um, in the, the paraphilia realm, um, particularly folks who are... Um, non-offending pedophiles or minor attracted persons. Mm -hmm. And so something I work a lot with in, in educating people about that is differentiating between fantasy and behavior. Um, and a big part about that is me talking about like that we have not just sexual fantasies, but we have fantasies all the time about like something we'd like to do, but then maybe we're, we don't actually act on it. Like 
I don't know, burning an ex's house down or like mm-hmm. throwing something at a car that cuts us off. Like, I guess I'm just sharing some fantasies. You're of sharing mine with some you. Fa- <laughs> um, but you know, or like someone's carrying a plate of stuff and you're like, what would happen if I just flipped that shit over? Like, I think we have <laughs> fantasies often, but don't act on it. And so I wonder, like, I don't know, how do we walk that line? Because for the things that maybe are illegal or non consensual, mm-hmm. I think some people would say that allowing people to even engage in those fantasies may make them more likely or wanting to act on them. Um, Is that true? So here's the way I see it. Uh, What I see in my data, and I've seen this in other studies, is that most people have dark and very deviant thoughts on occasion along the lines of the things you mentioned but you know sometimes they're they're even darker than that um so so it's normal to have those really dark thoughts from time to time i think where it becomes a potential cause for concern is when one of those dark thoughts becomes your favorite fantasy and it's it's sort of the go-to thing that that gets you off when you're masturbating um then you know, at that point, there's potential concern that that you might act on this fantasy. So, uh, if this is something, or that the that, fantasy won't feel like enough, right, right. So, if this is something that that sort of becomes your go-to fantasy, and you're you're worried that you might act on it, and this is something that would be illegal, uh, then 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 that's where it becomes a, a cause for concern. And so, how do you address that concern? Like, if you do find yourself masturbating to something that is completely impossible and it is your go-to fantasy, like it, it feels to me that fantasy is not something you control can control. It just feels like mm-hmm. it's this part of you that you have no idea where the fuck it came from. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, sometimes you can psychoanalyze it, <laughs> but um, like, how do you address that? How do you shift back from like what your fave fantasy is? Well, I think that's one of the things where we need to start by making sure that therapeutic outlets are even available for people who have some of those really dark fantasies. So, for example, if we go back to the example of, of pedophilia and people who are attracted to um, to, to children, um, in in lots of states in the U.S., they have these mandatory disclosure laws for for therapists, where if they suspect that a client has sexually abused a child, they have to report that person. Um, and those laws are well-intentioned because they're designed at, at protecting children. But what that has the effect of doing is it scares off a lot of pedophiles who voluntarily want to seek yes. help, who have never engaged in any um, uh, illicit sexual activity. And so as a result, they don't have any outlet for even seeking help because they're, they're mm-hmm. worried that they'll be arrested uh, for, for just talking to a therapist about that desire. So I think we need to start first by making sure that, that therapeutic resources are available for people who uh, have not committed crimes and voluntarily want to seek help. Um, the other part of that is really going into therapy and then working with the therapist on uh, how you manage that sexual desire. Uh, the, the issue is that it, it's, it's really hard to, to voluntarily change a fantasy or turn on, but therapists can help in terms of giving you the tools and resources you need in terms of managing those desires so that you um, aren't going to act on it. Or finding legal and consensual ways to express oneself. Right. And there are all kinds of variants of our fantasies that could potentially serve as viable substitutes. Um, and, and this is also true for cases where people have fantasies about something, but they're concerned about their safety if they were to act on it. So, for example, if you talk about so-called rape fantasies or forced sex fantasies, um, many people have these fantasies, but they're scared to act on them because they 
because in your head you have control over how the script goes, but in reality, somebody else takes some of that power and control and people are worried about things going beyond their comfort zone. So, you know, for somebody who has a, a forced sex fantasy, maybe some other variants of, of BDSM could, could serve as viable um, substitutes for for enacting that fantasy because four sex fantasies contain so many elements of uh, of BDSM yeah because in a in them. fantasy you're you're in control yes yeah, yeah. Um, are those fantasies very common the the four sex fantasies mm-hmm. yeah I find that it, it was about two thirds of the women I surveyed who reported fantasies about being forced to have sex. Uh, it was a smaller number of men, but uh, still it was, I, I think it was a majority, just over half of men who had had these fantasies before. So this idea of being forced to have sex is a big turn on for a lot of people. You know what thought just popped into my brain? I wonder if the reason that forced sex fantasy is so common among women is that we kind of live in the fear of rape all the time. So we kind mm-hmm. of like the idea of having control over it. Mm-hmm. And, and it could be, that could be one of the, the, the potential contributing factors there. Um, another potential explanation for it is just that women have far more BDSM fantasies in general than men do. And this is just one of those, those variants of it. So whatever it is that draws or attracts women to BDSM um, might be why they, they tend to have more of those forced sex fantasies. Do you have any insight as to why that is? So that's an interesting question, and I, there are some different schools of thought on that. Um, but I think one, I wrote a paper about this and maybe quoted you in it also. Oh. <laughs> 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 um, well, one possibility is that you know we live in a culture where women are shamed for their sexual wants and desires far more than men are, and and BDSM is one of these ways of of sort of getting out of your head and and relieving yourself of all of those anxieties uh, that, that that you might have about sex. And so maybe women are more in need of, of forms of psychological escape just because they live in a culture where uh, their their sexual wants and needs and desires are, are so highly stigmatized. Hmm. And when you say women, would you, is that just like biologically female people or is it like any estrogen driven person? I don't know if you've included much like, mm-hmm. you know, trans women um, in your studies, but. Yeah, I'm speaking just more generally about people who identify as women and historically would have been mm-hmm. considered female. Um, they're yeah, the ones who have right. really been, been the targets of the shame. Um, with regard to the trans question, I did have about 5% of my sample uh, that identified as gender non-binary in some way. And so I was able to look at uh, how the fantasies of non-binary persons might be similar or different to cisgender um, men and women. And, and there are some, some, some interesting differences that emerge there. Like what? Such as. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, glad you asked. Uh, so there were differences in, in You don't have the to frequency. ask for permission, Dr. Lay Miller. <laughs> I mean, unless you want to. <laughs> uh, so, so there were differences in the frequency with which they had certain types of fantasies. Um, and non-binary persons... Uh, across the board had more uh, taboo sexual fantasies and more BDSM uh, fantasies as well. They also had more fantasies about physical transformation where they're becoming uh, a different person or being entirely. So that was one of the things I found really interesting Mm -hmm. was they had more of the uh, more fantasies about 
being a furry, so you know, dressing up as an animal and, and having sex, more fantasies about um, uh, the adult baby phenomenon, um, more fantasies about uh, you know, trading bodies with someone else. So it was just across the board, all different kinds of physical transformation fantasies were more common for, for non-binary sense. persons. Yeah, I think it does. Sorry for the interruption, but pause this episode right now and go use our discount code to get some new lube from hashtag lube life. It's already affordable and organic, but if you use the discount code 20scholars, you can have it for even cheaper. Hashtag Lube Life products are made in California from the highest quality ingredients in their certified organic facility and are available in water-based, silicone, flavored, and more. I'm going to taste the watermelon flavor right now, actually. Ooh, it brings me right back to the days of lip smackers and bubblicious gum, except now it's even sexier. If you don't like flavored, they also have regular water-based, silicone, hybrids, and more. Remember to make sure you're using the right lube for your body, your toys, and your barriers. To buy hashtag LubeLife through Amazon, go to lubelife.com and use promo code 20scholars, 20-S-C-H-O-L-A-R-S. Stay wet and remember, lube is your best friend. Now, back to the episode. I was just curious if you could elaborate a tiny bit more on adult baby in case... Our listeners mm-hmm. haven't heard of it. Uh, so those are fantasies about dressing up as or acting like a child. Uh, and, and sometimes that goes along, or I should say more like an infant. Uh, and sometimes this goes along with what's called diaper fetishism, where they might uh, wear and or use a diaper in the process. But diaper fetishism can be its own whole separate thing. But But the key point is that they're really acting like being treated as and, and dressing up as an infant. And if we do have any listeners interested in the ABDL, Adult Baby Diaper Lover community, please reach out. We would love to have you on. Um, and there's also, like, if you're interested in getting into that network community of people, um, there are even adult baby daycares, at least in Southern California, that you can go to. So your people are out there. <laughs> um, but going back to the, the force... I Yeah, I love you too. Uh, going back to the, the force fantasy... Um, Another reason that I remember reading, and maybe you can uh, correct me, but sort of piggybacking on what you were saying earlier, is that there is this shame and stigma around women who are in charge of their sexual desires. And so one of the functions of force fantasy is sort of like taking the onus off of women for having desire. So -hmm. it's like, oh, well, this person made me do it. They made me, you know, do sexy things. They made me want this. Um, instead of kind of taking ownership over, yeah, a sexual desire or that women can have a sexuality. Right. Yeah, I think there's there's definitely something to that. Oh, sorry. We're going to have to pause for a second. Um, there's something <laughs> the, in the kitchen. The alarm may sound. <laughs> the alarm is loud. You have a smart house? <laughs> sorry. We're getting ready for, for brunch and there's bacon being made in the kitchen and apparently setting off the, the smoke alarm. So sorry. <laughs> we get it. Bacon is very more important than anything else. So go, you know, do what you need to do. Oh, it's it's it smells really good in here, by the way. But <laughs> yeah, I'm fucking hard, envious. I haven't had breakfast yet. Yeah, I wish you could like send smells over video chat. Right? Yeah, this the smell of vision definitely Fuck needs smells. to be. A send thing. me bacon over video chat. <laughs> Um, oh, so, okay. Sorry, where where were we? The question was about force, sex, and bacon, bacon, yeah. force, sex, bacon fantasies. That's right. Yes, um, <laughs> you could splash bacon. 
<laughs> oh, yeah, uh, splash bacon. Yeah, you know, <laughs> so there were a lot of fantasies about food and sex. Uh, bacon didn't really come up very much. It was mostly the stereotypical things, you know, the whipped cream, strawberries, and, and chocolate, and so forth. But um, one of the more fun food fantasies was... Um, one of the more fun food fantasies was uh, somebody who said they fantasized about gum from the Willy Wonka movie. Uh, so that, that, that would certainly make for, for an interesting sexual encounter. <laughs> How was it linked to sex? Uh, just you, like becoming a giant blueberry or just like the fucking concept of a meal yeah. through gum? Yeah, or or maybe it was. Um, I don't remember off the top of my head if it was you know sort of also a consumption sort of fantasy. So you know maybe there was kind of a a vor component in there where they might have been consuming someone uh, who was a blueberry, or they, or they turned into a blueberry and were consumed. Mm. Or the, you the could descript- capture the taste of somebody yes. into the gum. Yes. Yeah. Oh man, I'm going like wild with fantasies over here. Well, <laughs> but there's also there's also I, I don't remember if this is in the movie, but in the book there's this like kind of incredible incredibly sensual description of like the tomato soup like going down your throat. Maybe that's mm-hmm. part of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Never expected to talk about this in my life. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, I have a lot of people who say that to me uh, in that, um, you know, somehow in the process of our conversations, things come up that they just never expected to talk about before. But maybe that's just me. Any other, any other like particular fantasies that stood out maybe so people can hear that they're not alone? Yeah, one of my favorite ones was the, or I should say favorite in that it was just really interesting to me, was the <laughs> the, the human cow fantasy. Um, in, in the process of conducting the survey for this book, that was how I learned about the, the human cow phenomenon, where um, it's people, primarily female identified, who basically fantasize about dressing up as and being treated as a a human cow. So uh, in in one of the fantasies that a participant wrote, she wanted to be tied up in the center of town and force-fed hormones that would make her lactate continuously and people would come and and milk her and have sex with her at will. This is new for me. I am very rarely, like, given new information in the sexuality realm, and thank you. I have never considered that. I can, I wonder if there's a component of like milking also. Of course there's like, a component of milking. And yes. there's a section of like lactation fantasy. Yeah, it, it definitely ties in with the erotic lactation fantasy, but it's also a variant of, of BDSM because, you know, there, there are themes of bondage and, and dominant submission uh, that, are, that are involved here as well. And it turned out... Um, you know, I did some more research into the human cow phenomenon, and there's a whole genre of porn uh, dedicated to it. So uh, it's it's sometimes it's you know animated where it's um, women's heads on cows' bodies, and you know it takes a lot of different forms. But you know, again, if you can think of it, there is porn for it. I know what I'm googling after this interview. Yep. <laughs> I can't wait. I can't wait. I feel like this is going to be like Simone's thing. Like I'm gonna be into it. <laughs> you, I don't know. You love food and meat, and I don't know, animalistic. <laughs> I will report back next week if I'm turned on by the cow porn I watch. The human cow <laughs> phenomena. Yes, let us know. There's also um, some human cow erotic fiction I came across as well. So if you're curious, I can send that along to you. Uh, please yes, do. Please. Yeah. <laughs> any other any other fave fantasies? Um, I mean that was the most interesting one I to me. Top. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's hard to top that. I mean, in terms of things that really interested me about the data, um, they weren't necessarily so much about like the specific fantasies people had, but um, some of the other things that our fantasies seem to say about us. So, for example, how do people see themselves in their own sexual fantasies, and, and what does that mean? And what I found was that most people change themselves in at least mm. some way in their own fantasy. So most people appear in their fantasy, but most people appear as someone who is slightly different from how they are in reality. So they might have a different body type or uh, their genital appearance is different or they have a different personality um, or they're at a different age. Maybe they're younger, maybe they're a future version of themselves. Um, and I find that men and women and, and people of different um, sexual orientations uh, make these physical transformations in, in different sorts of ways that I think say something unique about us. So for example, women who have so much more pressure on them to look a certain way fantasize more about changing their bodies. Men who have so much pressure for their genitals to be large fantasize more about changing their genital appearance. Um, gay men who have all this pressure to look a certain way and have genitals of a certain size uh, fantasize the most about physical transformation uh, in all ways. So uh, there's some interesting wow. things there. Oh, one other thing I was going to add, um, since we talked about non-binary individuals, it was actually the non-binary individuals who had the highest rates of, you know, the ways that they changed themselves there as well. How can we use some of this insight about our fantasies to, I don't know, to, to do our therapeutic work with ourselves or mm -hmm. like find out more about ourselves? So I think that the way we see ourselves in our fantasies is potentially diagnostic of how we feel about ourselves and and also the culture in which we're embedded and the things that we're concerned about. So paying attention to how you think about yourself and your fantasies um, could could potentially be be meaningful. And maybe it's even possible that if you fantasize about yourself in a way where you're closer to reality, maybe that could help you to feel better uh, about yourself potentially. Yeah, and I think it can highlight like different happenings in our, I don't know, in our own life experiences. Like I remember one supervisor told me about a case that they had where a person was really into feet and like well-manicured feet. And it turned out that as they kind of traced it back and explored this fantasy that um, when this person was a young adolescent male um, in class and they would get like spontaneous boners as adolescent males or people with penises do, um, that the teacher would often walk around the classroom and like do that thing with her nails on like each desk um, and like look and check what people's work were doing. And this like student would have like a random boner so they'd feel really embarrassed and they would like look down and try to cover it. And they said that she always wore these like open-toed shoes with these really nice like manicured feet. And mm -hmm. so they started associating these spontaneous erections with like something that sexually interested them, like well manicured feet. Right. Oh and my that, God, is, that is fucking fascinating. Yeah, that's that's really interesting, but also really consistent with a lot of research and writing I've seen on fetishes in terms of how they develop is that there, there's often this learning process where they're um it's either through classical conditioning or operant conditioning where um in the classical conditioning case, you're just sort of associating, you know, one thing with another where, you know, sort of feet can become a cue for sexual arousal. Or um, in the case of operant conditioning, where you're rewarded or punished for uh, engaging in a certain behavior makes you more or less likely to want to do that again. So that learning component is really strong when it comes to fetishes. Wow. 
So we've talked so much about these fantasies and even talked about the the ways that we can use them or talk about them in therapy. But how do we talk about them with our partners? How do we talk about it with people with whom we could potentially explore them? Mm-hmm. And I think you need to start before you're you're going to share your fantasies with your partners. You have to feel good about yourself and your own fantasies first. So the process begins with kind of getting rid of that shame and guilt and anxiety. And that can come with just sort of expanding your definition of what normal is when it comes to sex. And that's something I try to do in the book is to um, help people understand that your fantasies are much more common than you think they are and there's nothing wrong with you for having them. Um, so, so once you come to that level of self-acceptance, then you can potentially start that process of sharing your fantasies with your partner. And then that's all about choosing the right time and place to do it. And, um, uh, and, and as you start sharing your fantasies with your partner, starting low and going slow, you know, not jumping into the, the kinkiest thing you can possibly think of, but maybe start with something a little bit more vanilla. Use that as a way of sort of opening the lines of communication and developing trust and intimacy with your partner. Um, because if you ever want to get to the point where you're acting on your fantasies with your partner, you need that trust and that high level of communication. Um, and then also when you're sharing your fantasies with your partner, try to validate them in the process. Tell them how they play an integral role in your fantasy and that your fantasy isn't about just escaping them and, and, and so forth. Because sharing fantasies is something that a lot of people feel anxiety about. So validate your partner when you're sharing those fantasies. Certainly. And I obviously hope that when you finally take the plunge and express your fantasy, that your partner is receptive and validates you in your fantasies. But do you have any advice for maybe when your partner doesn't react positively? I don't want people to think that that's probably going to happen, but should it happen and like your partner is like really uncomfortable with your fantasy, Mm -hmm. how can you respond to that? And that's where I think you go back to, you, you want to minimize the chance of that happening by testing the waters first and sharing some of the more vanilla sorts of fantasies. And if your partner isn't even receptive to those, that's a red flag that if, if you start to get into the things that really turn you on, um, that, that you might not get a positive response from them. Uh, so so yeah, it might not be safe to, to share that fantasy with them. Um, and, and that's also why some people have... Uh, consensually non-monogamous relationships because, uh, you know, they have certain fantasies that they can only act out with with certain partners. So each partner is meeting a different need or fulfilling mm-hmm. a different need for them. Um, if, yeah. I was just wondering if, it's com- if, if that's common, not the non-monogamy, but uh, a partner responding not positively. So I asked people when they shared their favorite fantasy, how did your partner respond? And the vast majority of the time, people responded positively to their partners. It depended a little bit on the type of fantasy, though. Um, so and it also depends on gender as well. So, so for example, one of the fantasies that was less likely to receive a positive response was when you had a, um, a male-identified individual sharing a group sex fantasy with a female identified partner, right? Um, And then also further, when people acted on group sex fantasies, that was the fantasy that was least likely to turn out well, I think, because a lot of people just, they don't have a script for, you know, what happens in a a threesome or group encounter. They haven't thought it through and maybe they don't have the high level of communication they need to, you know, make that fantasy a positive experience. Yeah, or they don't have the communication for, for after the fact 
to process it and potentially turn it into a positive or like a learning mm-hmm. for next time. I think it's interesting though that you said for for most couples starting with like a more vanilla fantasy because it so depends on like what community you're in. Like I'm just thinking of like the kink in the BDSM community and that might be one where like before you even play together, you go through an extensive list mm-hmm. of like what you're interested in, like very openly mm-hmm. um, versus maybe people not in that community wouldn't do that. Um, I think it's there's a difference though between someone responding negatively because I think there's a range of that. Like someone may just... They may hear you and be open and accepting and not shaming, but that doesn't mean they're interested in doing it with you. Right. And and that that's not uncommon where people might share fantasies and find that, you know, your partner doesn't share the same fantasy as you. But that's okay because most people have multiple different sexual fantasies. And so there's likely to be some common ground there where you can find other ways to to be sexually expressive with one another and still fulfill your fantasies. You're coming to LA and a few different cities to expand on this and teach about this um, with this awesome group that I used to work with called the Sexual Health Alliance. Um, which basically provides education for folks who need to know about sex but maybe haven't had the experience, which is like therapists, OBGYNs, psychiatrists, psychologists. Um, Can you talk a little bit about this like tour that you're doing? Yeah, so with the Sexual Health Alliance, um, I've I've already done presentations in Austin and Dallas and Denver. And coming up, we have uh, Los Angeles, uh, Seattle, um, and um, there are a few other cities. Um, oh, Chicago. Uh, so basically what I'm doing in these cities is giving a two-day workshop where on the first day, um, we sort of do a deep dive into the science of sexual fantasies. And on the second day, we, we continue that, but there's also an afternoon portion where it's it's open to the public and is presented in a, a way that would be accessible to, to anyone who wants to come, even if you're not training to be a therapist or a counselor. So um, the goal is really just Anyone to, who wants to come. Yeah, anyone who wants to come. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, so uh, yeah, full details on that are at the sexualhealthalliance.com uh, uh, on the website. You can find everything out there about registering and, and attending. And, and it's, it's a fun... It's a fun event. And you actually, you can come to the whole thing if you want. And I found that people are coming from all over the country to some of these events, and many of them are totally outside the psychology and therapy realm. Uh, you know, I had somebody once um, recently who was a, a businessman who came with uh, his wife, and they stayed for the, the entire weekend. And at the end of it, he came up to me and told me that I had totally changed his marriage uh, for the better. So, you know, that's that's was really nice to hear. A fucking dream. Amazing. Yeah, I would love to go to that. And I think I think I would identify as like sexuality curious. <laughs> yes. Anybody who's sex sex curious. Speaking of sex curious, I was reading a lot of your like blog posts prior to this interview. I was doing my research as a scholar. <laughs> and there were two posts that I found super interesting. One was about, and I know this is coming back to common fantasies, but talking about MILF fantasies and mm. how common they are. And I was wondering if you could touch a little bit on that. Mm-hmm. Or just yeah. incest fantasies in general. Well, I don't know if MILF is necessarily an incest fantasy. 
Yeah, I, th- I think there's a, a, a distinction there. Um, I, I asked about the incest fantasies, and I found that about one in five people reported having incest fantasies defined specifically as sex with a blood relative. Um, that, that's a whole other discussion, and there's actually a bonus chapter for the book um, that, that goes into incest and some of the other uh, more taboo fantasies. And uh, if, if you purchased a copy of the book, just go to my website, uh, sexandpsychology.com, and uh, click on the Tell Me What You Want page and just fill out the information and you'll you'll get the bonus chapter emailed to you. Um, but but to go back to the MILF question, um, I think that's that's really interesting. MILF is one of the most popular categories of porn that's out there and it has been for for many years. And I think a big part of the appeal stems from the fact that MILFs um, are these these women who are um, a, a little older than your typical porn actress, and they tend to take on these very dominant roles, and they have more social status over their male partners. And um, I see in my own data that men who are fantasizing about milfs uh, are fantasizing more about taking on submissive roles. So it's something about you know that sort of dominant submission dynamic that that's appealing there. That's so is there any component of like the care caretaking, like as a, a motherly figure? Now, now that is part of it as well. So I, this was something that was really interesting to me. I found that the men who had more MILF fantasies also had more attachment anxiety. Um, so, so more fear of abandonment and, and need for reassurance. And so for, for some men that, that MILF character might be, you know, this, this maternal sort of caretaker who is uh, helping in, in terms of relieving that anxiety they have. That's so interesting. And then another thing that you said in your blog post, and this is not even pertaining, or this wasn't in your blog post, this was on Vice, um, not even pertaining to fantasy, but for my own knowledge, having sex with your ex can be good? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so so that's interesting. I think a lot of us tend to think about ex-sex, you know, having sex with somebody we've broken up with is a horrible, terrible, no good, very bad idea. Um, but it turns out that in the research where they've looked at people who are engaged in ex-sex, ex-sex um, by and large, they're reporting positive experiences and that this is um, uh, helping them with, you know, sort of the the process of, of coming to terms with their breakup. Um, so, so rather than it being something that just prevents you from ever moving on and, you know, kind of gets you stuck and constantly dredges up these negative emotions, what we see is that that's not the case and that for many people it's, it's almost kind of therapeutic uh, that they're doing this. It's like comforting and familiar. Is there like a time frame in which it's like more beneficial or more problematic? Now, that gets into something that they haven't really explored yet in the research. So I don't know if, you know, long term, um, you know, there could be differences in how beneficial it might be uh, based on if it's, you know, uh, sort of a fresh breakup or something that happened um, a long time ago. So it's a question for future research. Maybe that'll be your next study. Yeah. (laughs) I banged my high school boyfriend like recently. Why didn't you? fully bang him. I guess we just did sex stuff. Um, although that can count as banging because like, penetrative sex is not the only form of sex. Um, <laughs> and I, it was like, it was like oddly familiar. Like we still had sex like through college, but it'd probably been like five years since we'd been intimate with each other. And we like started like getting naked and stuff. And I was like, oh my gosh, like you're still so beautiful, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, you're stuck in the past. I'm a new person now. Like it was like super 
it was like super weird and ended kind of oddly because I was expecting to like go back into this like familiar discovery thing, which we had had so much before. I don't know. It was just interesting. Just sharing my ex-sex experience. I do love fucking my exes. I think I tend to do it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, but your, your experience is interesting because it, it sounds like um, he, he's changed a lot over time sexually. And, and that's something that I see also in my data on sexual fantasies is that people can become totally different sexual people over time in terms of what it is that, that turns them on. Uh, our sexual fantasies are not static. They're constantly evolving over the course of our lives in response to, um, our, our changing psychological needs. And that's one of the things I found most interesting about the data. Yeah. Have you fucked an ex, Nicoletta? Yes. <laughs> I've had good experiences. Um, yeah. Typically, most, yes. Yeah, I think most of them have been positive experiences. For me, I definitely don't think they were positive when they were soon after. Um, I don't know how mm-hmm. each person would define soon after, but like if I was still dealing with the emotions from the breakup, to mm-hmm. me, it felt too, like if I really wanted to move on, um, it did feel confusing. It didn't often give me closure. But for exes that I had been intimate with, like maybe enough months later or years down the line, it was they were great experiences. Yeah, um, and sure. it was like cool to see like how we had each learned like new techniques, mm-hmm. <laughs> and there was still that aspect of like familiarity and like comfort we had connected before. Um, but it still felt like a new experience, like a new chapter with a, a different person. You know, I think something else that we need to consider in future research on XX is what are people's motivations for doing it? And if your motivation is mm. because you want to get, to back, get back together, together. and, and <laughs> then you don't get back together, then that could potentially mm. be very damaging. So I, I can come up, I, I can think about circumstances where XX could be bad for you. Um, but just in terms of what the research says in general, uh, the overall effect doesn't seem to be there. It, it seems to be more beneficial than harmful. What about hate fucking? <laughs> Um, yeah, so that that's interesting. Um, I didn't really get into this in the book. I haven't really explored it fully because I asked about so many different sexual fantasies. But I asked um, people whether they'd ever fantasized about having sex with someone that they despise or hate. And sure, sure enough, lots of people do <laughs> fantasize about that. And I think part of the appeal of it is that... Um, there's sort of this emotional transference that that, that occurs where uh, you know one emotion like anger can heighten uh, sexual arousal. We, we've seen this in a lot of research in psychology for a long time that the, there's sort of this <laughs> you know emotional contagion or transfer, whatever it is that you want right. to call it, where one emotion amplifies the effects of another. Yeah, we're both like nodding in agreement. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> I think it's also I, I do believe that you can't. I think hate is a strong word and I do feel like you can't hate someone that you don't still have some kind of feelings for. Like if you don't care about someone, then it's just a neutral feeling. But I do think like hate and love are attached and that they're both really intense emotions. Right. You know, there's also just something about the, the, when you're angry, it, it creates this heightened state of physiological arousal. Your heart starts beating faster. You have all of these other things going on. And um, that that amped up physiological arousal is, is part of why sex can be so exciting when it's with somebody that you have that that anger for. It's just because it takes that arousal to a different level, a much higher level than it might otherwise be. 
I feel like I've learned so much from this conversation and I'm sure our listeners have as well. So we want to encourage all of you to check out Dr. Leigh Miller's book, Tell Me What You Want. It's probably available on Amazon and other places. But if people want to stay up to date with all the rad stuff you're writing and on social media, how can they do that? Uh, you can follow me on my my website, uh, sexandpsychology.com. And uh, I have accounts on all of the social medias, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. So however you prefer to get your information, you can find all the social media uh, links on, on my website. And uh, with regard to the book, Tell Me What You Want, it's also available as an audio book that I recorded myself in a studio. Uh, so that can also be another fun way to listen. Yeah, yeah, so if a fantasy of Hands yours free. is hearing Dr. Leigh Miller talk more, <laughs> get the audible. <laughs> I can't believe I said that. <laughs> um, and I, I'm totally going to promote it again because I'm a big fan of the Sexual Health Alliance. But if you're in one of those cities or if you can travel to one of those cities, um, I would definitely recommend getting your tickets. The one in Los Angeles is coming up in May. Um, but yeah, check out sexualhealthalliance.com. Um, if you want to go here, uh, Dr. Leigh Miller in person. Thank you so much for joining us. Again, if you want to follow what we're doing here at Sluts and Scholars, we're on Instagram at Sluts and Scholars, on Twitter at Sluts Scholars, and you can always email us at slutsandscholars at gmail.com. Thank you.